So first Thessalonians chapter one, let's read again from verse five to verse seven. Stephanie. Okay. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. But from you, the word of the Lord. Verse has... 7. Oh, just as ever. Sorry. Yeah, to verse 7. So that, thank you. So that you became exactly. examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Now, the core of my interest here as we begin is the gospel, right? It says, our gospel did not come to you in word only. And this is where we tried to begin the last time we looked at these verses, right? We said that um, at the heart of what Paul did in Thessaloniki that caused a church to be established within a very short time frame, even in the face of very intense affliction, like you can see in verse 6, is that he simply brought the gospel. But you see, the gospel is not a powerless tool. Because in the book of Romans, Paul revealed that he was eager to come to the Romans. And part of why he was eager to come to them and part of why he wrote the letter as a forerunner right, to his visit was that he wanted to test and prove and verify that the gospel was not just for the outcast, the poor who needed a hope for the future. You know, that's how many people in the Western societies or Many people like um, for whom life is not on the rough edge. That's how they see the gospel, right? That the gospel is practically just an anchor for the hopeless. And it's it's natural for a natural man to think like that until we reach our wit's end on any matter and then we begin to look for God. But he was saying to the Romans that I know that in Rome, Rome was the economic, political center of the day, right? That was the place to be. It was, you can even say it was also the technological center. So I know that in Rome, you pride yourselves in political power. You pride yourselves in economic power. And you are nothing in Rome if you don't have any of this. And up to this point, the gospel has prospered among slaves, amongst people who were captured by the Roman Empire, you know, so it's very clear that the gospel seems to have a certain demographic. But he, he's, he was saying to them that I'm coming to Rome and I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I don't need to change anything about the gospel for it to be in to, to be as effective in Rome, right? In a place of the nobles and the powerful and the excellent. I don't need to change anything about the gospel for it to be as powerful as it has been in in the less privileged areas of the empire because i'm confident that in the gospel is the power of god for salvation to all to all who believe and it says because in the gospel a righteousness is revealed from faith to faith as is written the just shall live by faith so paul was saying to the romans right that the gospel is his weapon so this is where i want us to begin because Tonight, we want to try to bring it down to each of us in the places where we live, right? In the places where we work. That the gospel is our weapon. The gospel is powerful. See, Satan, right? Would If, if Satan knows that you know the power of the gospel and you have the power of the gospel in your hands, 
he will try to keep everybody around you from <laughs> encountering you. He will try to make you offended with the people around you or make them offended, offended with you just so that you do not minister the gospel to them, right? Because he knows that there is a power in the gospel. God has implanted the power. And we try to understand then what is the gospel. So I said that to say that the gospel is the business that all of us have, right? Is the is the is the uh, ministry business that all of us have been called to. So that in your family, in your workplace, in your school, wherever it is that God has placed you, you have the gospel. And if you understand the gospel, and if you do have the gospel, then you have a power that hell is afraid of and not just hell is afraid of but a power that can unleash god that can bring god on the scene and break men free from the power of darkness and it is the gospel and we said last week um referencing romans chapter one that the gospel is not first of all the good news about you and i right because oftentimes that is the angle from which we present the gospel. And there's nothing wrong in saying that, you know, God loves you and has a great plan for your life, right? Because this is the way that um, we often begin the conversation. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't say that, right? But the gospel at the heart of it, the thing that makes it powerful is not what it does for you. The gospel is the good news of God, right? It is is the good news about God. And that good news is that God was manifested in flesh, that God took on the, the, the limitations of our humanity. However, even when, even though he took on the limitations of our humanity, there was something about him that made him stand out, that made him excellent. And Romans chapter one calls it the spirit of holiness. And it is that same element, the spirit of holiness that powers our lives, right? That makes us different, that makes us shine, that makes us stand out. And it's that same spirit of holiness that God offers to everyone who receives the gospel. So that's to say that you are not here talking about the gospel if you do not bring Jesus to the center of your conversation. I'm saying that because I know that, especially in the West, it's possible to have very long and interesting conversations about sin, about morality, about the meaning of life, about the origin of life, the destiny of life. You can talk about all these things, and the person that you're talking to would actually start feeling some conviction. But until you present Jesus, you have not talked about the gospel. And if you don't present Jesus, you cannot experience the power that is in the gospel. Do you see? He is at the heart of the gospel. Romans chapter 1. Again, like we looked at it last week. Right? Paul, a born servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son. The content of the gospel is about his son, Jesus, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. So he had a fleshly, human, natural element to him. He had a lineage. He was born of the seed of David. That's, that's his human side. So he's like you and I. If you have a human lineage, then this Jesus had had the same. Yet he was declared 
to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. There's obviously so much in that verse, but I just went there to highlight that the content of the gospel is about the son of God. He's the stumbling block of the ages. And so if you want to know if you're, if you're, evangelism efforts right or if your preaching efforts or if your outreach efforts is if you want to know how much mileage it has gained in the heart of a person bring jesus to the center as quickly as possible because it's when he comes into the conversation that the sheep is divided from the goat very quickly right that you know who is poor in heart who is poor in spirit who is ready for the gospel to work upon them and who is not yet ready to acknowledge their sin now I'm going somewhere with this because um, Isaiah chapter 61 says that the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. The gospel is not for the economically poor, right? Or socially poor. The gospel is for the poor in heart. Those who recognize their need for God. Now, the reason why it's important for us to place Jesus at the center of the gospel, right, is that um, the power of the gospel lies in the ability of the Holy Spirit to confirm and to convict the hearts of those who hear the gospel. So that if Jesus is not at the center of what we are saying, the Holy Spirit does not have any basis to convict men. Right? That's what Jesus told his disciples before he left in John chapter 16. Right? Because um, they were concerned that he was going away. And not only was he going away, he was going away at a time when hatred for him was rising. And anybody who said they were following Jesus, you know, was also um, going to, was on, also under the same threats, right? And under the same hatred that jesus was experiencing and jesus in fact had even cleared their doubts and he told them if if they called me beelzebub right then your a servant is not greater than his master expect persecution expect tribulation expect difficulty so the question is how are they supposed to represent jesus after he has gone so that's what verse 7 of john chapter 16 tells us nevertheless i tell you the truth it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the helper, he is the one that makes the gospel powerful. The helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Why will he convict the world of sin? Of sin, because they do not believe in me. So you see that if your gospel does not have Jesus at the center, there is nothing that the Holy Spirit has to work on in that delivery. Because the power of the gospel, the strongest power of the gospel is the power of conviction. The conviction that the Holy Spirit can bet in the heart of a man because he does not believe in Jesus. So you can see that sin in singular here, the 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 summary in God's view of the sin of humanity is the, is the basic sin of unbelief. The, the basic sin that I can run my own life 
I can be my own God. I can save myself. That basic sin of unbelief. Right? That the Holy Spirit will convict men of that sin because they do not believe in him. And then he says, he will convict them of righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no more. So he's saying that his resurrection from the dead, right? The fact that Jesus resurrected is God's approval of his life. That he was righteous because Jesus presented to us a standard for morality that gave us a hint that nobody can survive the judgment of God, right? By any human standard. Nobody can, right? He said, if your neighbor asks you to go one mile, right? You go two miles. And then at the end of all of that, he said, be perfect, even as your father is perfect. By the time you're, you're finished with the Sermon of the Mount, it should, be, it should be clear to you that except if God himself helps you, you cannot live up to this standard. And that is the story of the gospel. That through the spirit of holiness, God gives us a righteousness that is superior to any works that we can do. That's where the righteousness begins. The, the imputed righteousness. We did the book of Romans. That was actually the first book, right? That we did um, in this study. We talked about the, the imputation, the, the logitomai, the accrediting, the credit statement of righteousness that is imputed to you. That's the only basis upon which you can stand before God. And then it is that righteous nature, right? That then produces righteous desires. And as you follow those righteous desires, you find out that the outcome is a holy life. So only in Jesus is a complete provision for righteousness found. And, and if you present that provision, the Holy Spirit can convict men of the insufficiency of their righteousness. You see, and of judgment. I don't want to press these topics too much because they are not our focus of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. You see that in your presentation of the gospel, with Jesus at the heart of that presentation, the issues of sin, and by sin, we mean the basic sin of unbelief, Right? The issue of righteousness, the inadequacy, the insufficiency of righteousness has to be on the table. And the issue of the certainty, the inevitability of judgment has to be on the table. You know, it was this matters that Paul reasoned with Felix about and Felix told him, let's, let's end this trial. Let's continue tomorrow. He was, he was scared to his bones. That's the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why the gospel is so powerful. When we do not put Jesus as the thing we say last after we have said everything else. But when we bring him to the center. Right? Now, I want us to, to, um, um, to build on that, right? Because the gospel, friends, and this is where it now begins to apply to us more practically where we are. The gospel is not just something we say. Because if you go online, especially in the West, sorry that I keep using the West, I'm no longer in Nigeria. So my problems and challenges are very Western now. And I hope you can accommodate that. But as we have Twitter and Instagram and all these influencer platforms, I can see a lot of 
the thinking and the philosophy of of the age here beginning to filter into our society as well. So I guess what I'm saying is relevant to you also, right? The gospel is not just something we say, because if you go online, you're going to find people, like people are very curious, what is the scientific proof for God, right? What's the evidence for God? And if you think about that question intellectually, it does make sense, right? That based on how we arrive at knowledge as humans, if we say we want to believe in God, then we should be able to bring certain evidences, right? And then you have all the apologetics answers that are wonderful, right? That you can give to uh, that you can give to people. You have the Kalam cosmological argument. You have the argument from design. You know you can you can have a great discussion. And I and I speak to you as one that has had many great wonderful discussions. But you see, there are just two proofs for the existence of God, right? And those two proofs are in the gospel. The first proof is your life. And that's the human proof. So there are two proofs. It's not complicated. There's a human proof and there's the divine proof. That's why Jesus said, you will receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And this power is not coming to do anything out of the ordinary, actually. It's coming to make you be. Wow. Just think about that for a moment. This power you receive is first of all coming to make you be. It's not even coming to make you do primarily. It's coming to reconfigure. It's coming to reshape. It's coming to make your life such a life that your existence is a proof that the gospel is true. Right? So it doesn't matter if God plants you in a family and perhaps you're the least, like your voice has the least authority in that family. Your life, your life is supposed to be the first proof that the gospel is true. If it is true that the same spirit of holiness that animated the life of Jesus rests in you and I, then there needs to be proofs. Like we are not saying that your life is perfect, right? Because all of us receive grace in measures. But we're saying that there's, there's going to be a distinct proof. A distinct proof that we don't know what happened to you, Sha, but you touched God. And that's why Paul is saying that our gospel did not come to you in word only. Now, before we go to also in power, right? Because many times when we talk about power, like Stephanie was saying earlier, we only think in terms of our church services and the things that happen in those church services. Right, But that's not the idea that Paul has here fundamentally. Because after he talked about power and the assurance or conviction of the Holy Spirit, he says, you know what kind of men were among you. You know what kind of men. You know when we were tested, when we were pressed, when our love, our kindness, our patience was pressed. You saw a different thing. You saw the favor that was on us from heaven. There was something about our lives that was sufficient proof to you that God is alive. And when we began to preach, our life was the first proof that whatever we are saying has substance. And now, to bring it back down together again, what I would say practically, because it's important for us to see this practically, right? Is that friends, as people who are called to be witnesses, Okay, before I say this, let me just 
add a bit on what I mean by you receive power to be. Now, you know that the Bible says that Jesus, right, he had the spirit of God without measure. Now, you and I don't understand what that means. But what it means in simple language is that he was God, right? The spirit without measure, <laughs> it's an immeasurable dimension. And the immeasurable dimension is the dimension of God. It means absolute possibility. Impossibility does not exist, right? Whether it comes to power or it comes to healing, he had this spirit without measure. So he was God. That's exactly what the statement means. But do you realize that even, even though the Bible says that Jesus had the spirit without measure, Jesus said that if you believe, you are going to do greater works than this. So you and I only have the spirit in part, right? We don't have him as in the same way that Jesus had him without measure. So Jesus had the spirit without measure. You and I have the spirit in measures. And yet Jesus honestly believes that if you receive what I'm giving you, and if you believe, you will do greater work. So you can see that the spirit does not come to make you do things. Anybody can do things. Do you see? Or Well, let's not say anybody can do things, but you get the point. Doing is secondary. The Spirit comes to make you be. And there is a power in being. So Jesus had a Spirit without measure, made him something ontologically in his innermost person, in his being. He was the Son of God. That's why he was not disturbed whether there was storm that was raging and the boat was about to capsize. He had the spirit without measure. He's God. That's his being. You see, despite everything Satan is doing in the world, God is at peace. Have you noticed that God is not scrambling in an emergency room looking, what, okay, what is the plan? He's at peace. And that's the first thing that the power, the presence of the Holy Spirit comes. It makes you be. So that when people see the level of peace you have, in the midst of uncertainty, the level of assurance you have, when people see the level of joy you have, it's a bright witness to the people closest to you that we don't know what happened to this person, but this person touched God, or at least this person touched something. Okay? So now, I was going to say, right, before because uh, this thing I just said now is a digression to hopefully help us understand better. But I was going to say that if our gospel, right, does not come in word only, right, but the first manifestation of our gospel is our lives, it means that you and I need to be able to share our testimony. If I ask you, tell me your testimony, because the gospel is about Jesus, right? So your, your testimony is, what happened when you met Jesus, right? What was your life before? That's your testimony. You know, this is very hard for us Nigerians or Africans to do because when we ask people what was your testimony, the reason why you may not even have thought about what I'm saying is that to you, your testimony is a very long story. You know, that you need season one, season two, season three. But actually, you need to practice telling your testimony in one minute and telling it in five minutes. Because your testimony is not very long if you think about it critically. Of course, the details are long. Well, your testimony is, what was your life like before you met Jesus? Just give us, just give us a hint. 
you don't need to give us all this, just a hint. What was it like before you met Jesus? What happened when you met Jesus? What was that encounter like? And then what happened after you met Jesus? How has your life been after you? Okay. In fact, if you're in many ways, you don't even need to tell us that one, right? Because your life right now is obviously going to contradict to some extent what it was. But friends, that's the power of your testimony. So that in your workplace, you might not know the perfect things to say, but you can share your testimony. Yes. And your life becomes the backup that whatever it is you shared is true. And it can set a man on a or a woman on a journey. So it's important for us to lay hold of that. So I, I think I've said so much um, so that we try to bring it together. I have to stop and ask if you understand so far. And yeah, if you have any thoughts or questions so far. So Joshua, in this verse, it says, you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake, right? Mm -hmm. Then you talked about the Holy Spirit giving us the power of being. Is that mm -hmm. what you said? Mm -hmm. Now, where, and then you also referred to living a holy life, and that is where, yeah, I know you mentioned that about how, what, the, the, what the Holy Spirit does, but you said it was a digression. But we know that phrase that we usually hear, or rather that I've been hearing more recently, mm -hmm. God understands. Okay. Right? So you said Paul experienced a lot of pressure. And, you know, they still had that testimony. They still maintained their testimony. But now, as in, I'm bringing this to practical, you know, you know, um, to what I've seen so far. So I'm just going to give an example. Someone who prays, someone who evangelizes, someone who basically lives a relatively holy life compared to many, but then engages in something like theft, like identity theft, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, using somebody else's papers. So what can you point out the thing to the person saying, oh, do you think this is right? And the person is like, I've been jobless for a long time. God would understand this. Mm -hmm. That does not necessarily show that power, does it? I mean, that phrase, God understands, is it, does he really understand that kind of stuff? Well, in God's words, in God's words, in in well, let's look at it. Isaiah chapter fifty. Let's see if God understands. Oh, Psalm fifty. Let's look at Psalm fifty. Okay. But to the wicked, now I always say to us that any time God calls wicked, <laughs> don't imagine the most extreme people on earth. For me, when I read the Bible, I apply it to myself, right? But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to declare my statutes or to take my covenant in your mouth? Seeing you hate instructions, instruction and cast my words behind you. When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames to sit. You sit and speak against your brother. Which of us is not guilty of verse 20, right? You, you you sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept quiet. 
And because I kept quiet, you thought that I was altogether like you. You know, this was God. This is another phrase for God understands. Because I kept quiet, you thought that I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Whoever praises God, whoever praises, whoever offers praise glorifies me. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. Um, we don't have time to go into the theological dimensions of this stuff, but Stephanie, does this answer your question? I didn't even know this thing was in the Bible, but thank you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. It doesn't mean that somebody's not a Christian if they act in a way that's not consistent, right, with the nature of God. One thing that it does mean for sure is that the person does not know God. Right? Remember in our study of First John, we John had to reveal to us that as you begin to fellowship with God, you need to realize that God is light. If you don't realize that God is light, you're not going to know God. Right? So it's possible that someone believes in God but does not know God. So the person cannot represent God well. But a place where the person does not know God is a very dangerous place to be if you're dealing with God. Right? Because God can keep quiet for a long time. Right? But if you're if you're naming his name and claiming to be his, he's going to return at some point. He's going to return at some point. And the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. Okay. So it's important for us to realize that the power of the gospel is not primarily the power of speech, because many people have the power of speech. Many people have the power of influence, right? The, the ability to gather people, to motivate them, to stir them up. Many people even have an anointing. Now, don't ask me how it's possible to have an anointing, right? Without being authentic. But we know it is possible because Jesus himself said it's possible. And there are examples in scripture and there are examples in real life. But you see, the fundamental power of, of, of the gospel is the power of godliness, right? That's what we said last week, that godliness is the first channel of the gospel, is the enduring channel of the gospel. It, it's the power of godliness that then translates to the power of utterance, right? Which is that when you speak, now of course, there are many things that contribute to powerful utterance, but when you speak, your words travel with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So that's a certain power that is in the gospel as well. First, the power to make you something, right? To produce the virtues of godliness. And even though you are struggling with something, the very desire to get out of that struggle is enough proof that a different spirit is at work in you, right? And then there's the power of utterance. But then, like we said, there's the power of signs, visible signs. Because being a witness for Jesus will often need that the power of God will have to be manifested visibly, practically, sometimes even instantly. Okay. Any further thoughts or questions there? No, but I think my perspective on power is beginning to change. Um, thank you for that. Okay. Friends, I trust God that each of us will be a lively witness for the gospel. That's my own prayer for myself, right? As much as I would like to see um, 
different things in my life, but at the core of it, I want my life to be a shining light, light to the gospel, for, for the gospel of Jesus, right? That when I open my mouth and begin to speak the gospel, it travels with conviction. That if I meet a witch, right? <laughs> if I meet a witch in person and me and the person knows that you are a witch, that I will preach the gospel to the person, right? I'll preach the gospel to the witch and it's the gospel that will save the witch. The gospel in its totality that I will be able to convict through the Holy Spirit or rather the Holy Spirit will be able to convict the witch through my utterance of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. And that the power of God will then come to break whatever it is that ties them to darkness. Because that's an extreme example, right? But each of us needs to trust God that in our daily lives, the power of God will be manifest because that's our heritage. That's the element that Paul introduced in Thessaloniki that guaranteed that this church was established. So we said that there is also the power of signs, right, in the gospel. And in general, we try to identify three channels of power. So how do we walk in power, right? Because it's possible. Now, we, we, what the example we gave last week was that John chapter 1 verse 12, where Jesus said, as many as received him, right, to them he gave the authority to become the sons of God. So the authority is a legal thing. It's a judicial position. Just like a, a, a child, a baby that's born in the United States, for example, has the rights of a United States citizen. But it doesn't mean that you have the power to execute anything that you want, right? You cannot say that on account of the fact that you are you are you are you are the son of God by authority, you can do whatever you want. No. First of all, you will realize that authority is different from ability. Right? You might have authority to do something, but not the, the ability to execute it. And that's why a baby, you can wheel a house to a baby and say, okay, this house is yours. But the baby does not have the ability to execute that will. Right? And this is where it's in the translation process. Because we said, for, for a believer to walk in power, there needs to be a translation. It's in the translation process, translating our positional victory, positional authority into practical manifestations. It's in that translation process that Satan short changes many believers yes because it was in that translation process that he visited jesus in the wilderness right and began to tempt him and if you look at those three temptations you find out that almost all our temptations come along those lines so that it's in the translation phase that he tries to suck out the ability to execute our sonship right and that's why the Bible says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So it's not as though if somebody is not led by the Spirit of God, he's not a son of God. That's not what Paul was trying to say. But he was saying that like positionally, you become the son of God by faith, right? You receive the authority to become a son of God. But in practice, if we're going to identify you in practice as the son of God, the thing that makes that possible is that you are led by the Spirit. And every temptation, or at least the beginning of the temptations that Satan brought to Jesus was to prevent him from being led by the Spirit, was to make him operate 
outside of the leading of the spirit in very crucial matters. Okay. And we, and we said that the first channel of power in the life of a believer is the will of God. We're not going to go over those things in detail because we did it last week. But the first channel of power is the will of God. If you find the will of God and you plant your feet in it, the power of God will be normative in your life. By that, I mean that the power of God will be normal. You will just discover that God is going ahead of you. Right? It's very important that a believer places priority on the will of God. If I know the will of God and I don't follow the will of God, the power of God will not manifest. If I know the will of God and I don't obey God, if I don't have a track record of obedience with God, it means I will not have a track record of seeing the power of God. Right? That's the primary channel through which the power of God flows. Is in the will of God. Stephanie, your hand is up. I just, I just remembered something. This whole thing about the will of God and just going with his will. I was listening to a message sometime by the our Apostle Aramon talked about how a lot of people are expecting to see the spectacular, like, mm -hmm. you know, thunder, thunder and lightning and, you know, the road to Damascus kind of experience, but a lot of mm. times the power of God comes like the dew. You don't see mm. it, but it's, it's there. Yes. And uh, it's just the Holy Spirit leading you every every step that you take. Yes. 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 Thank you for that. The Bible says that anyone who's born of the Spirit, right, is like the wind. You cannot tell where it's coming from, where it's going, but you just see its effects. You know that wind, wind shall pass here. You didn't see it. So, and that's how the power of God is in our lives, right? That because of the power of God in your life, there are many battles that God will fight in your life and you won't even know. Yes, you won't even know. You'll just notice that, Kai, you passed through the valley of the shadow of death, but you came out, there was no scratch, right? There was nothing that impacted you because of the power of God. It can become normative in your life. Yes. And that is tied to the will of God in our lives. So every time that there is a lack of power in our lives, a lack of an ability to execute, we need to investigate. And that's why prayer is crucial. We need to investigate what is the will of God. Paul says that you'll be ready to avenge every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Many times, sometimes we, we try to, you know, when we talked about the different modes of prayer, the prayer of faith, the prayer of love, the prayer of hope, right? If you remember, we said that oftentimes we default to the prayer of faith. When we see a mountain, we just start addressing it. You know, that's our default mode in prayer. But you see, if the will of God has been violated in a certain situation, that's, that's, that's what you need to redeem before you start prophesying, right? Before you start speaking out. So if somebody comes, let's say, and the person needs help, but there is a violation of the will of God in the person's life, you're, you're speaking in tongues, you're shouting, you may not be able to help the person, probably will not be able to help the person. Usually, there needs to be repentance. There needs to be deep repentance. There needs to be acknowledgement of things. There needs to be naming of things. At the very least, at the very least, that needs to go ahead of certain things before we see the power of God. And sometimes the power of God is available 
but we just don't even have enough faith to manifest it, right? To go in that direction, to trust God that as I go, his power will back me up. And that's why you read stories that, oh, a little child of 10, I don't know, healed the sick or raised the dead. It's because the will of God was already in motion and God was just waiting for someone to exercise faith. And usually a child is not as complicated as we adults when we, <laughs> in the ability to judge situations and render it hopeless or not. Okay. So that's the first direction that the power of God goes. The second direction that the power of God goes, the power of God goes in the direction of the revealed knowledge of God. So the first is the revealed will of God. And the second is the revealed knowledge of God that we have. We said that the knowledge of God is not intellectual. When we say the revealed knowledge of God, the word revealed is emphasized because the knowledge of God does not come to your mind because your mind cannot capture God. If your mind could capture God, then he wouldn't be God. Rather, God gave you a spirit so that through obedience and experience, you can know him. Right? Now, of course, like your mind is important in the process, right? Because your mind has to be instructed in righteousness. So, for example... If if you don't know God's position, God's the, the, like the position of God's justice system about, let's say, identity theft, right? The example that that Paul that um not Paul <laughs> Stephanie gave earlier. If you don't know God's position, right, about identity theft, and you think that God condones it, you will not have power to live above to. To accept your lot and trust God beyond whatever it is the identity theft could have got to you, right? So your your basic inability to exercise power in that situation is simply down to the fact that you don't know the God that you serve. Paul says, "Grace and Peter rather says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, according as His divine power has given us all things that pertains." to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that called us to glory and to virtue. So his divine power has made all the provisions we need for life and godliness available. And a translation mechanism is the epignosis, the revealed knowledge of him. Yes. The only way to know God, friends, is to be intimate with him and to walk with him. Even if you read the Bible, the Bible cannot help you if you don't intend to love God. The Bible only helps the one whose heart is ready to love the Lord. The Bible becomes an instruction manual in the ways of God, in the character of God, in the emphasis of God. And this is another way that power can become normative in your life, by the knowledge of God you have. There's a knowledge of God you can have and you never turn back from darkness. Now, if you don't have that knowledge, it's advised many times that if you see darkness, you just take another road and say, not today. But there's a knowledge of God you can have and you never turn back. It's that knowledge of God that made Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and said, <laughs> made them address the king without respect and say, oh, king, let it be known to you that if we, <laughs> let it be known to you that we don't have plans to obey this, your command, even if we're thrown into the fire. Okay, let's not dwell here. The third channel 
of the power of God is the supply of the spirit of God, right? We said last week that the measure of God's spirit that is captured in our vessels, right, determines the measure of God's power that we have. And this is where the principles of sacrifice, right, of and all the other principles that you know normally for power, this is where they come in, right? Paul says, do not be drunk with wine or be filled with the spirit there's an atmosphere you can come into that is filled with the spirit and many things become possible because of that atmosphere the thing is that as believers we we don't really believe god enough that a, a senior man of god does not need to be in an atmosphere many times they need to be please don't get me wrong right many times they need to be but they don't necessarily need to be in an atmosphere for it to be stirred for the power of god to move the fact that believers are gathered who have intimacy with God and who, who can bring prayer right to the table is enough to stir the power of God in a particular place, in a particular meeting. It's a very powerful thing when two believers hold hand and begin to generate power. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available is is the supply of the holy ghost yes many times you need to travel in prayer travel in prayer until you touch that supply in case sickness likes overwhelming your body i found out friends that you can overwhelm sickness the holy spirit in you can overwhelm sickness but i found out also that usually that level is not on the surface you have to go deep in prayer, yes. You have to go deep in intercession. And then something from the Spirit rises up and it overwhelms the sickness in your body. Right. Of course, remember that the first channel is as the Spirit wills. <laughs> as the Spirit wills. Right. There are many things in our lives that are not the will of God for us. And our prayer cannot change them. Okay. So once we have discerned the will of God, we can journey in the direction of the will of God. Well, all these things I said, friends, is actually secondary, but it's important, very, very important, please. So take note of it. But the core of what verse 5 is saying to us is that there is a power in the gospel, and that power is manifested through a life of godliness. And when you back up that power, right, with utterance, and that utterance can be sharing your testimony or preaching the gospel that is centered on Christ, then the Holy Spirit can bring conviction. He can convict men of sin, convict men of righteousness, convict men of the judgment to come. Friends, when you go to preach, forget everything else, forget every other philosophy and build on this foundation. Who is Jesus to you? Do you know him? Do you know why he came? Do you know why he died? Do you know what his resurrection means? And trust the Holy Spirit to to convict men of the basic sin of unbelief and of the inadequacy of their righteousness and of the certainty of judgment. Okay? My question for us is, do you know your personal testimony? You know? And I'm, I'm not talking about your life story. I would really love to spend three weeks sitting down hearing your life story. But when it comes to sharing the gospel, I mean... Your personal testimony in five minutes, just five minutes. What was my life like before I met Jesus? What was it like after I met Jesus? 
doesn't matter what walk of life that you are planted in. That testimony, God needs it. It's powerful. It's powerful. It's not only the testimonies of the breakthroughs that came into your life that are powerful, especially to the unbeliever, even though sometimes those testimonies can help. But you realize that the thing that you call a testimony, many times people that don't know Jesus have the same testimony, right? Whether it's breakthrough or even healing sometimes. What is the core testimony that can only be forged by the power of the gospel? Is what happened to your life when you met Jesus. And look at what happened to these people from verse 6 and verse 7. It says, you became followers of us and of the Lord, right? So the way they followed the Lord was through other people. The Bible says they received the word in much affliction. I don't want to dwell on the topic of affliction because we've done many studies that have addressed this topic, hopefully in good enough content. But they became followers of the Lord and us. Is there someone you're following? Right? Not just someone that you're listening to, which is awesome, but someone that you're following. That you're following, that you can ask questions to, that you can clarify. Ah, this thing I did. Was it is is God in it? You know, sometimes you can clarify and say, This thing was it? How do you see it? Is there someone that you're following? It says you became followers of us and of the Lord. And then you yourself. So you see that the, the gospel has come full circle. In verse 7, you yourself became examples to all in Macedonia and in Achaia. So now let's read verse 8 and verse to verse 10 of First Thessalonians 1. Stephanie? Okay. For from you the whole world Therefore, from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us that concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Amen. Amen. Wow, do you see the complete gospel here? Do you see the complete gospel? Paul came, he planted a seed, they received the seed, even in much affliction, and they began to follow, and they themselves became examples. The full circle of the gospel. It says that from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Friends, verse 8 is our prayer point in this series of Thessalonians, First Thessalonians. From you, everywhere, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place, your faith towards God has gone out. Wow. Remember, we said that their faith, faith, right? The quality of faith that was highlighted in this letter is the faith that works right because paul talked about your work of faith and this is the thing that we glorify god for your work of faith so it means that there are certain works that when you see them you know that these works were done only by faith something as simple as preaching the gospel if you don't have faith you can't do it 
So don't wait for somebody to give you the microphone for you to exercise your faith. The work of faith in the place where God has planted you is proof that you have received the true gospel. And it is a channel for God's strategy to reach every place. Your faith toward God has gone out. That's my prayer. That in every institution, in every city where God has planted us, that our faith towards God will go out, whether we have to say something or not. And you can see, I've, I've hopefully shown you how your faith can go out before you say anything. Yes, because the first proof for God is the human proof or a, 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 an important proof for God is the human proof before God comes to back it up with divine proofs of signs and wonders. Your faith has gone out. So what was the content of their faith? Right? And this is where we're going to conclude because it's important for us to rehearse what it is that the true gospel produces in, in our lives. Verse 9 says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, how you turned to God from idols. So the first manifestation of their faith is that they turned. Right? The second manifestation is that they serve the living and true God. So there are many gods, but there is only one living and true God, and they serve him. And the third manifestation of their faith is that they wait for his son from heaven. So do you see the elements of faith, hope, and love appearing again? They wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That at the heart of what we have believed, at the heart of the gospel, at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, is the reality of the Lord Jesus. And that if Jesus is at the center of the gospel, there needs to be a waiting posture about the life of every believer. I want to ask you, are you excitedly expectant of the Lord Jesus? Are you looking forward to his return? Do you stop to think about the Lord's return, that he's coming back? And when you think about the fact that he's coming back, does your heart rejoice? Does your heart rejoice? If your heart does not rejoice, or if you have not even thought about it, it's likely the case that you've not really considered the worth of the gospel, the meaning of the gospel, right? The implication of the gospel. Because if you have considered the gospel in its full picture, you're going to realize that there is no hope for this creation as it is, except the return of Jesus. Right? You're going to realize that the brokenness of this world is not about to end. Unfortunately, you're going to realize that this world is bound up in the bondage of corruption. And when you realize that, the only thing you can do is to look up and say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. You are the desire of every nation. It is you that the hearts of men are longing for. There is no peace in our continent, in our streets, because the Prince of Peace has not come to take his place. Sicknesses continue to rampage, ravage our children. The power of darkness con continues to control destinies. The harvest remains ripe and white, and the laborers remain few. Return, Lord Jesus. Return. Return.
There is a hope that the world has that nothing can satisfy. No amount of United Nations treaties or political stability can satisfy. No amount of material prosperity can satisfy. Only the return of Jesus. Only the return of Jesus. And that's the core of what it means to be a believer is that your life is grounded so much in the gospel that every time you think about his return, you rejoice and say, Lord, I thank you. I thank you that the darkness will not have the final say because you are coming back. You are coming back. You are coming back and the earth will shine with your glory. It will not always be this hard, friends. No, it will not always be painful. It will not always be difficult. There will not always be delay because he will return. Is that hope formed in us? Because the Bible says that he that has this hope purifies himself. Yes. We said that the longevity of your faith will be determined by the quality of your hope. That's where Paul wraps up, wrap, wraps up the first chapter. Right? But before we, we wrap it up, I want us to look at that point about turning to God from idols. Because this is the... This is the first manifestation of our faith, turning to God from idols. It's almost as though there's a progression here that if you don't turn to God from idols, you cannot serve the living and true God. Now, you can serve another God. You can serve another Jesus, but not the living and true God. So that idols are practically going to keep you from serving God, even though you think that you're serving God. And that's why it's possible, right, for many to say to Jesus in that day, we cast out demons in your name. We served you. But then they now realize that Jesus didn't know them. And we see that the core issue is idols. That's why John ended his first letter and said, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So I just want us to investigate it quickly as we close, right? What is an idol or what are idols and what does it mean to turn from idols, to turn to God from idols? Anything that's an idol in my life and in your, in your life is going to be the reason why we don't worship God the way he deserves, right? It's going to be the reason why we don't serve the living and true God the way he deserves. It's going to be the reason why the gospel will be weakened in our lives. What's an idol? And what does it mean to turn to God from idols? Is my question too hard? No, it's not, but you just answered it, didn't you? What's the answer? Those things that we do that makes us to turn away from God. Okay, that's a good one. Yes, an I idol. An idol can be defined as something that makes you stumble, right? In your work with God. The idol itself, right? The idol itself, you may not be able to categorize it as an explicit sin, right? But the idol is a stumbling block. Makes you, obscures the living God. It obscures, it, it makes you stumble. So the idol itself is not the stumbling, it's not the sin itself, but it makes you stumble into sin. 
Now, I don't want to give specific names so that you can really think about your life. What is it in my life, right, that makes me stumble? It could be the fear of man, right? Or it could be the acceptance of man. See, it's not wrong, let's say, to desire acceptance. All of us have a longing that God placed in us to belong, right? To be accepted. But you see, when acceptance becomes an idol, the applause of men, the approval of men, it becomes a stumbling block that can keep you from following God, from obeying him, and it becomes an idol. And so God will have to bring you to the place where you lose all sense of the approval, the applause, the acceptance of men, just so you can follow him. Do you see? Yes. But Joshua, I've just realized that an idol could also be like insecurity, one's insecurity. Yes. So there's the approval of men and then there's the denial of, uh, I don't know how to put it, but basically just, and I think I used to have that, like before, just this whole thing of nobody accepts me and just accepting that, or nobody likes me, no, people just reject me when they see me. And that's the first thing that comes to my head, yes. you know, at the time. Yes. And it's, yeah, so I don't know what to call that, that syndrome, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it's more tied to a, a poor or incorrect self-image, right? But essentially, if the thing makes you stumble, right? Because imagine if God is saying something to you that you're not able to believe because of how you view yourself, right? Then it becomes a problem. It becomes a sin in your life, right? It could even be your sense of righteousness or your sense of false humility because God said to Peter, kill and eat, right? Three times and he refused and we know how the story ended with how that was the last major involvement of Peter in the book of Acts that is recorded at least, right? So anything, anything, if God has, says, has said, Stephanie, you are this, and because of your experience, your past hurt, your mistakes or whatever, you refuse to hold on to that, right? Then your hurt, your pain has become your God. The thing that makes you unable to accept God's testimony, God's instruction has become your idol. I'm saying this because we know that idols here in context is referring to physical elements, right? That people were worshipping. And because of that, it can be very difficult for us as 21st century believers to relate directly with it when the Bible says, keep yourself from idols. So this is the first thing. Right, this is one definition that Stephanie gave us of idols. Right, very important. Anything that is a stumbling block to following God. Now, I want to say something else about this, right? That an idol usually is something that is set up in your heart. Especially the idols that God really is concerned about is usually something that is set up in your heart. So that stumbling block is actually hidden in your heart which is why God has to do a digging work, a deep work in your heart in order for him to be able to start working with you fruitfully or to a new level. So like Stephen was saying, if that 
poor self-image is entrenched in your heart. That's what makes it really an idol because it's not like as though, okay, you were placed into some circumstances and you made some bad choices. No, this is something that is written on your heart. If there's an ambition that is registered on your heart, and you may not even have said it, but you just dream that ah, people should like me, you know, which itself is not wrong, but then subconsciously or subtly, because the devil's way is always subtly, that desire begins to influence your message, begins to influence your style. It begins to influence where you go and where you don't go. You see how subtle it is. So that's the invisible part of an idol, right? But there's also the visible part of an idol, which is what Paul is actually addressing here, which is that man is finite, right? Um, some people feel very insecure, but the truth is that all of us, if we're thinking normally, should feel insecure actually. Because man is finite, man is limited, man is weak, man is dependent. We don't have time to establish that, but that should be very clear that there's none of us that's sufficient in ourselves. It doesn't matter if we're Christians or if we're the president. Even the president of the United States needs armored vehicles, right? Bulletproof cars. Like entire cities need to go on lockdown when the president is visiting because of how fragile man is. It doesn't take milliseconds for his life to be snuffed out of him or her. So now an idol is anything that we run to to fill up our insufficiency apart from God. And this is where the traditional idolatry of our African cultures comes from, right? Nobody's going to go to an idol if they had all knowledge, right? If they knew, let's say they are curious who killed this person, why did this person die or what's going to happen tomorrow, right? If man had that information, he wouldn't seek an idol, right? If man had all power, oh, my daughter is sick. I've tried everything. I don't understand the sickness. You know, it is these basic limitations of humanity that led our ancestors into idolatry to begin to seek help from spirits and to bring entire lineages and generations into bondage because of those choices. So anything that we go to to fill up our insufficiency right, becomes our idol. And so that's why you can see how movies can become an idol. Alcohol can become an idol. Sex can become an idol, right? Anything that that becomes our source of meeting our insufficiency. Because you see, God's desire, friends, is that he wants to fill us. He wants to fill us, Kai. He wants to fill us. But you see, if we have something in our lives that does not give God the space to fill us, then we cannot know God as he wants us to know him. And if we cannot know God as we want, as he wants us to know him, then we can't serve him. The prerequisite for serving God or for loving God is knowing God. We shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Israel could not keep that command because they didn't know God. Only Moses knew him. And that's why a, an important article of the new covenant that God caught with his people is that each of them will know me. Because only as you know God that you can love him. And only as you love God that you can then serve him. Right. So God wants to fill every void. But you see, when we make it our duty to fill the void, then we hinder God. Right? For example, if you're a single person, 
God wants to fill that void. But it's possible that you don't let God fill that void of singleness. And you fill it with activities, fill it with career, fill it with ambition, fill it with men even. Right? Or with the wrong friendships. There's a knowledge of God you are supposed to get through that season that you will not get. And when you enter into the next season of not being single, you're going to realize that you that you needed all the knowledge of God you could have gotten as a single person. Of course, I'm just using this as an example. This also applies to married people and to everybody else. Right? We must identify what is it that is filling us up that is not God. Of course, we're human beings. We need to eat. We need to sleep. We have basic appetites, right? Those appetites were not designed to govern our lives. Those appetites were not designed to rule over us. Whenever it is that any of those desires or appetites begins to rule over us, it's time to come to the cross and say, God, my soul was made to be satisfied by you alone. I was made to find my joy in you. How come... I'm not finding my joy and fullness in you, but I only find it when I take a bottle of this or I only find it when this is in my life. I want to reach the place where it's only you, only you, only you. Because you might read that these people turn from idols to serve the living God and you think it's just an easy thing. Ah, They had a wooden thing in their house and they took it and burned it. There was an inadequacy that, that that idol represented a solution for. And so turning from idols meant that they had to turn over their insufficiency. I know this because as someone who works, for example, you, your, your intellect, right? Your ability to, to generate value can become an idol and you are running helter-skelter. You are anxious, trying to keep up your position without realizing that Christ in you it's enough wisdom, favor, power to keep up that position without your undue extra effort. But then you lay it down so you can love God. The Bible says that they turned from idols. They turned, they turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. To wait for his son from heaven. Seco paradiles kamba. That's where we're going to stop tonight. So we can pray a little bit before we close. Thank you so much for joining us.